thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> That's sweet. Now I get to read Exodus. But I can share with you, I got up this morning, we had a couple of our grandkids spend the night and opened the window and there was a rainbow shining in the sky. And I thought, and I thought, you know, and my grand, little grandson said, do you think God did that just for you? And I said, I think maybe he did because it was such a sweet reminder of his promises. So it was a sweet way to start the day. So thank y'all for making it even happier. Okay, today our reading is from Exodus 20:17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Where do you think all those appalling wars and quarrels come from? That's what James asks in his, the uh, uh, fourth chapter of his letter. He says, do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way, and you fight for it deep inside yourself. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You yearn for what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. That's at least how one translation, again, has James opening up his fourth chapter. At the heart of the quarrels between each other is actually a conflict within us. A lust, a yearning, a desire, willing to expense, to pay the price, whether of things or of people, of ourselves, for something belongs to someone else. That's what our scriptures mean when they use the word covet. To have such emotion within us, a lust within us, a yearning within us, a desire, a passion within us. There's all kinds of different words that are used to describe this kind of force from within. But it's a, it isn't just to want something. It's wanting something with a willingness to pay the price to get it. Whether the price be other people, whether the price be something else that we have, whether the price even be ourselves. And it's not just wanting something else. It's wanting something that belongs to someone else. There's a real distinction, and we'll talk about both of those as we go. If we thought the final of our ten words would be an afterthought, which most everybody else that's not here did, right? Um, Just kidding. If we thought it would just be an afterthought, or perhaps a mere summary of the things already stated, it's not. Once again, the ten words reveal the essential nature of life together good by disclosing what makes it not good. And... As James elaborated in what may be a more common translation, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. While each of the ten words presents a unique tension in our daily engagement with their essential nature, as we've discussed throughout the series, the final word might stand out as unique among the unique. At least when it comes to the six words regarding our relating to one another, no coveting is perhaps the most overly dismissed, practically misused, and universally pervasive of the words. We don't talk about it a lot. It doesn't get a lot of headline. It tends to get overlooked or explained away. While each of the ten words, again, presents something unique, this word might stand out as unique amongst all the other ones. Because think about it, nearly every culture in human history across the entirety of the face of the earth has, in some explicit fashion, codified the laws relating to the previous five words. That is, they've created rules and regulations, civil rules and regulations that require honoring of authority, of not killing, 
of not breaking covenant or contract, of not stealing and not lying. Yet no society that I'm aware of has ever set down laws governing desire, including the Jewish culture. Ironically, unlike the words preceding, there are no Levitical precepts, no, nothing to turn to in the book of Leviticus, no civil regulation in the Jewish court system with punishments that are assigned to the, ten word, the tenth word. There are scriptures similar to the commands spoken, like in Deuteronomy 7, when God's people are told to utterly destroy the idols of other nations in the land of promise, and then... God says to them, Thou shalt not covet the silver or the gold that is on the idols, that the idols are made of, lest you be ensnared by it. There's commands that sound similar to the tenth word. There's also observations similar to the one James made, tracing the heart of our wicked, hurtful, violent actions to coveting, like the one from Micah. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, who dream of ways to hurt others. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Because these dreams, these longings, these desires for something wicked and evil are now the thing in which they get to act upon. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in in his house, a man in his inheritance. There are also words of wisdom that warn of the trouble stemming from coveting, such as these from Proverbs. The righteousness of the upright delivers them but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust, by their covetousness. The desire of the sluggard, whatever desire forces him to act or not act, kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, he longs and longs, he lusts and lusts, he covets and covets, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. But perhaps the most revealing of the tenth words, twisted abandon, is found in Ezekiel 33. Here, the Son of Man has been sent to prophesy that God is ending His people's breaking of covenant. He's putting an end to uh, their breaking of covenant. He's going to do this by letting them have what they have chosen over a long period of infidelity. A life free from Him, but which is sadly actually enslavement to someone else. However, as God says through, through his prophet throughout Ezekiel, there is no pleasure in this separation. God's only desire is for those he loves and has been faithful to, to turn back, to not die, but to live and live whole and holy with him again. And so there's this mixture in what the prophet has been speaking, speaking this judgment. Time's done, you get what you want, you've walked away from God. But hey, listen, God really loves you and longs for you to be whole and holy with Him. Come back to Him. That's all He's really wanting. He's not trying to destroy you. He's trying to help you see that you're destroying yourself and wants you to come back into life. And there's a sweetness to that song, right? There's a sweetness to that revelation of what is destroying us and an invitation into what might bring us life. And this mixture of pointing out the brokenness of the community and the heart of the Father compels the people to listen. There is a, and yet, there is a more subversive force driving their actions and inactions. Or so God reveals to his prophet. Ezekiel 33 says, God speaking, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, the ones who are, who are, who are like taking what you're saying and they're listening to it, they're talking about it. They're conversing about it. There's something, there's something to what you're, what you're doing. 
They say, come and hear what the, what the word is that comes from the Lord. They even recognize what, where this kind of source of, of revelation is coming from. And they come to you as people come. They come to you as ones who are, who are ready and, and, and willing. They sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their own covetousness. Indeed to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. While the people were moved by the warning and invitation of God, even believing that both the warning against what leads them to death and revelation of what and who leads them to life, Even though they believed it, they were moved by it, they acted not with reason, nor in faith, but from covetous covetous desire. No matter how clearly they could see, nor how fervently they believed in their brokenness and God's goodness, they could not act in accordance. And should we fail to appreciate the ubiquity of Ezekiel's experience, that this was maybe just a one-off in our history, We need only listen to what Paul says about his own history with the Tenth Word. Paul, writing to the faith family of Rome, many of whom were using the law to inhibit rather than, as we've seen throughout the series, to free and to expand life, he says to these who've got the law all twisted, the law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct, Surgical command, you shall not covet. I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Of all the commands, why does Paul choose this one as the example of missing the mark of the ten words? Missing the heart and the life which they were meant to aid God's people into building. Why this one? Again, he could have used any of them. Like, obviously, God's people throughout history had taken and twisted the Ten Commands to fit their own agenda in so many ways, right? In almost all of them. Excuse their actions. But Paul particularly, specifically, points out the tenth and final word. Perhaps, like us, coveting is so natural that we dismiss it or dress it up as righteous judgmentalism. More on that in just a moment. In truth, while we can, by all Outward accounts keep the first nine words to some degree of success. That's at least the Pharisees showed us for hundreds of years that um, that that was at least possible in some sort of way. The final word is inescapable. Eventually, our desire for something that is not ours, that is someone else's, leads to war within and quarrels between. Eventually... Our desire for something that is not ours, but is someone else's, leads to wars within and quarrels between. Eventually, we will risk violence and death. Maybe not physical death all the time, but undoubtedly relational death, psychological destruction, emotional devastation, even economic corruption, whether of some other person, of ourself, or even something to get what we want, what we covet. Eventually, we'll risk those things. Eventually, we'll end up like the people in Ezekiel's prophecy who love what the scriptures and the pastors and the prophets are saying, but are unable to live free in the truth because the force that holds our hearts 
is a yearning for something that is not ours. We cannot escape desire, but we can capitalize on it. This is one reason why the tenth word has been so readily dismissed and universally exploited throughout the centuries. We cannot escape desire, but it can be capitalized on. Today we live in a world literally built on the fact that wanting what is not already ours is the strongest motivator to work and to spend. This is especially true if the thing we desire is shown to belong to someone else. Someone else of stature, of fame, of beauty, someone with power, or even an ideal image of the life we desire. Without a drive to have what we do not, and more specifically, what another already has, there would be no advertising industry, no social media influencers, and perhaps no even social media. <laughs> there certainly would be a reduced debt industry, right? And maybe even a less divisive educational and political environment. Nearly every pop-up commercial mailer post and attempt at persuasion is banking on your inability, my inability not to covet. It's banking on the fact that we can't help but covet, because that's what we do. Now, that doesn't mean that everything promoted or sold or constructed is bad. Indeed, there are more than a few frivolous things produced, both products and ideas manufactured and sold in ways that prohibit flourishing, of which I am the chief of, of, of the guilty at buying and buying into. But remember, we are made to work, to craft, and to build a world good. And so much more of what we work for and produce, whether a product or a service, is good and for the good. Unfortunately, though, the, because the tenth word is so overtly dismissed and universally invasive, so assumed to be the way that we're wired, that it's not wrong, our face history has used the tenth word to make condemning judgments. Because in the Secular world, there's not really a secular-secular divide, but let's just pretend because we kind of live this way, right? The secular world, coveting is who you are. You're a covetous person. Let's play off of that. Let's benefit off of that. Let's capitalize off of that. That's who we are as humans. We desire, we desire more, we desire what's not ours, and we desire mostly what somebody else has. So we're going to build our systems around that to some degree or another, right? Well, in reaction to that, the religious world has, has now taken this don't covet and twisted it to its own demise, creating a, a world of condemning judgments. Our faith heritage, and maybe you experienced this and maybe you've contributed to it like myself, is full of those who condemn things. They read the 10th word and somehow presume the object's names, houses, spouses, servants, employees, animals, resources, all the things listed, are themselves the source of our passion. And so they exhort abandoning things and condemn the possession of things. Anybody ever heard that? Right? And listen, there's some truth to that, right? We can be overwhelmed by things. We can love things in an inappropriate way, right? But are the things themselves the source of the evil, of the wrong, of the misappropriation of love? Ironically enough, when God's people were freed from enslavement to Egypt, remember the thing that happened just before the ten words are spoken, right? What did they leave with? All kinds of things from Egypt. 
that were given to them. Practical things, non-practical things, things of wealth, things of use. Like, and that was, the way that the story is told, that was actually God's blessing to allow them to be able to continue to go forward. They were given things. Not to mention that they were being led into a land that they would possess. They would own. It would be theirs. But if things were not the ear of the, the pious, then desire became the thing. If we couldn't condemn things, if we don't condemn things, then we the, the, then it's the thing that, that, get, that makes the things wrong that's actually the thing that's wrong. Objects and ideas are only vessels of desire, or so it's argued. Therefore, we need only suffocate desire and discipline our hearts to long for nothing in this life but God to live faithfully. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever felt guilty when wanting something and feeling like, oh, I shouldn't want this. I shouldn't, not this, whatever this is, this is neutral, but I just shouldn't want. I shouldn't desire. Anybody ever ever thought that? There are absolutely things that we desire that are not good things, right? Things that don't flourish, things that aren't healthy, right? But is desire itself a thing that's twisted, that's something that we're not supposed to do? As we've talked about numerous times in our faith family, and as our scriptures that we'll look at in just a minute with a little more detail testify, we are made to desire, to long for the whole and the holy in our lives here and now and not just forever. Like the reason that our, the world thinks that we're covetous, that we only operate off of desires, because we're actually made to desire. It's actually true. Like this is how God's made us. We're meant to long for the things that are good and whole and true, and to go after them, to want them in such a way that we actually do the things that are necessary to get them in all the good ways. And there's also this thing that happens too. When, when um, you can't make someone not desire by command. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried that on yourself? Hey, I know I don't, I'm not supposed to want this, so I'm just going to really try hard not to want this thing. Like, does that ever work? Like, is that ever, does that ever suffice? No, we know that, right? And as a parent, I've learned this even more so, right? You cannot, you cannot command desire any more than you can make someone honor by just telling them to do it. You cannot command desire any more than you can demand somebody love, right? And again, being a parent, I've learned that such efforts are completely futile, <laughs> For demand cannot soften or open or satisfy our heart. Demand cannot soften or open or satisfy our heart, though it can harden it. Demand can't soften a heart, but it can harden it. Ultimately, and this is the real problem that James speaks of, our judging of things and desire becomes inseparable from our judging of others. That's really the issue. Those who have things and desires we consider too much or the wrong ones, those who do not give up things and desires as readily as we might, are the ones that we're in conflict with. And ironically enough, a lot of the times it's us right in the middle that are the ones that have too much stuff that we feel like. We feel the guilt of having too much or wanting too much. Much of our religious judgmentalism is, truthfully, as Paul said, covetousness, Covetousness dressed up. The tenth word is not a prohibition against things or desire, but a life disconnected from delight. 
Remember what we read at the beginning of um, the gathering, the Psalm, Psalm 73? Listen if you can see what the psalmist all, is all worked up about and what or where the solution, the peace and the perspective is found. Like, based on our conversation so far, let's reread Psalm 73 and just see if you can pick up where the tension of the psalmist is, what's causing the tension, and what's the solution to the tension. Psalm 73, verse 13 says, No doubt about it, God is good. Good to good people. Good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it. Missed seeing His goodness. I was looking the other way. Looking up to the people at the top. Envying the wicked who haven't made. Who have nothing to worry about. Not a care in the whole world. Pretentious and arrogant. They wear the latest fashions in violence. Pampered and overfed. Decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully with the way they use their words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths, disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Is nobody tending the store? The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd given in and talked like this, if I'd uh, said the things I just wrote, if I'd prayed the things I just wrote, should be a little laughter at that point. If I'd actually said this, my heart had actually believed these things. Like, it's like, no, my heart's actually believed these things, right? Just, just so we know, right? Just so we're all on the same page. If I'd have said these things and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear, your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant. A dumb ox in your very presence. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. You receive me to your glory. More little translation. The psalmist says that what caused him to quarrel with others, those who had, was really the war within himself, right? It was, it was that if I had talked like this, if I had been like frustrated like this, if I had seen them, if I, if I, like, I, what is going on here, Lord? I knew that like, you're good to the good-hearted and to the pure-hearted, but, but I see them with things in a life that I kind of want, but I don't really want, but, but it's, it's actually the life I'm really after, and they're getting the life that I don't have. That's what's causing all of his frustrations. He's looking at the world that he wants, calling it evil, but still wanting it. Longing for it. The psalmist says, the quarrel that's causing his tension is the quarrel with others. Those, those who had really what he wanted was a war within himself. A war of reason, of what he knew, what is going on. That God was good and supposed to be good, but it didn't feel like God was good. And a faith, a war of tension of faith of like, I know that God's supposed to be good to the clean hearted and the pure hearted. But listen, I've put in a lot of work for this and I haven't got jack squat to show for it. His reason, his faith is worn with his envy of what others had. 
against the covetousness in his own heart. When we want what others had, like Asaph, that's the writer of the psalm, who is David's worship leader, by the way. When we want what others have, like Asaph, usually it's from a place of envy. Usually it's a place, even us righteous people, from a judgmental jealousy. It comes from a place of feeling like they have and we do not. Whoever they are is usually and quickly labeled wicked, if we're honest, right? Like even, again, maybe this has never happened to you, where you look at even other believers who have what you don't have, and in your head, you make up stories about ways that they're, they're not nearly as faithful as you. They're not nearly as good as you. They're not nearly, they haven't done, worked nearly as hard as you. I'm sure none of, nobody's ever done that in here except for me. Right? We feel like our way of living with God and others does not work for our benefit. And so we are totally consumed by that envy, that longing, that lust, and are like senseless animals, oxen, wild beasts, under the control of instinct, not reason or even faith. And so what we want turns from a longing to a war of trust within and quarrels between. What happens when desire is disconnected from delight, from the place and the sanctuary of worship? What we desire turns into what we demand and what we feel entitled to, all the while keeping us from seeing the whole picture, which is the fleetingness of a life lived for someone else's life. A life lived after someone else's life. It's fleeting. It disappears. That's what the psalmist would say. It burns up. It's gone. A picture we only see in worship in a place of delight. Again, when I tried to figure it out, when I tried to figure out what was going on inside me, what was at war around me, why I felt all these tensions, I got a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I could see clearly. Then I saw the whole picture. But if we're not attentive... The end of envy that we see in our worship, the, the recognizing the fleetingness of wanting something else that someone else has, and how, how we know that if we got that thing, we wouldn't actually be satisfied. That's what happens in worship. We see that the thing that we're after isn't the ultimate thing, and that having that thing, especially that thing that somebody else has, isn't the solution to our life. But it, it, as quickly as we can see that, as attentive as we are to that, it's easy for us, I think, it's easy for me anyway, to forget and just be like Ezekiel's people. Be able to hear that and want that. Like the people of faith gathered around Ezekiel, like Paul who followed in their footsteps, to continue to dress up our covetousness rather than trusting our desires to God. That if we, we see this in worship, but it's hard for us, like the people in Ezekiel, like Paul, to walk out and do the thing that we actually want to do because our hearts are still led by covetousness. That's why David wrote, in what sounds like both a rebuking response and affirmation to Asa's psalm in Psalm 37, he says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. He's saying, like, just like Asaph, don't do what Asaph just said he's doing, right? Like, we get that. Don't, don't do that, right? Don't covet. For they'll soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. That's what Asaph saw when he was in a place of worship. But he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Literally means feed on God's faithfulness. Not you be faithful, feed on God's faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you what? The desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. If you've been around Christ City for a while, you're familiar with this psalm. Um, yeah, sorry. I was, I was like, I looked at my watch and I was like, it's already, but it's not yet. Sorry, you got a few more minutes with me. If you've been around Christ City for a while, you're, you're familiar with this psalm. It's actually one of my favorites, Psalm 37. For it grounds me when I'm prone to dress up my natural covetousness as righteous judgment rather than jealousy, which is what it is. And it does so not by demanding that I stop desiring or having things. Because this is, again, this is the tension that we fall into in our world, right? Like we know that what we're, the covetousness, we feel the, the twistedness of it, the, the, the fleetiness of it, the wickedness of it. And we want something different, but usually what we tend to do then is to despise desire, to despise things. We tend to fall into the religious trap that has been the religious trap for every generation throughout history. But the psalm doesn't, it keeps us from the trap, but it also keeps us from falling into the religious trap by grounding our desire and delighting in the one who delights to give us what our hearts truly want. It doesn't say don't desire and don't go after things, don't want things. It says, trust the Lord and do good. Take what you got and live on it, right? Make a good life. We've talked about that ad nauseum, right? In May through, through, through June, right? Do good. Feed on the Lord's faithfulness. Dwell in the land of the living. Feed on the Lord's faithfulness. Delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Don't not desire. Don't go after things. Just do it from a place of worship and delight in Him, of trust in Him. If, as the psalmist continues, that is, how the psalmist describes that we can continue, says, be still. Literally, let your heart settle before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Listen, we can, the way we don't end up like the people in Ezekiel's time, the way we, we don't end up like all those in the tradition that Paul followed in and like was trying to get the Roman, the church of Rome to not fall into as well, is we trust in the Lord, we do good, we dwell in the land, we befriend God's faithfulness, we delight ourselves in the Lord, knowing that He'll give us the desires of our hearts. And how we do that, how we actually practically do that is we be still before the Lord and we wait patiently for Him. We let our hearts settle before the Lord. So what does a still, settled heart look like? Most commentaries and authors that I've read in preparation for this series, for the sermon, contend that the tenth word not only prohibits coveting, but also directs contentment. Right? If each, if each word has a negative, it also has a positive. Right? Like if it says, don't covet, then be content. Who's ever heard that, right? Anybody familiar like that, right? What does the word content automatically try to draw up in your mind just when you hear the word? Happy, right? Be happy. Be happy. Again, as a parent, I've used this to my, to my kids' detriment. Like, just be happy with what you got. Be content, right? Like, like yes, it's broccoli. And yes, there's, there's things that aren't cheese. I know I'm looking at you. Like, I know there's things that aren't cheese, right? It's okay. Be content. It's going to be all right, right? And we, listen, I use this word all the time like that. Just be happy. Just, you know, get what you get and don't throw a fit is, is the, the slogan, right? Get what you get, don't throw a fit, right? Again, maybe I'm ba- a bad parent, but I've used that, right? And I would agree with the, the commentaries that, that 
contentment is the positive side of covenant. It is the opposite of, the, of, of being coven, covetous, covetousness. Such a weird word. But I want to add a nuance to that. I think a nuance is necessary. Be content doesn't mean get what you get and don't throw a fit. It doesn't mean not to want something different or something more. Being content does not mean not desiring something different or something more. Again, our heart desires, our heart desires the good, true, and beautiful. And where those things are lacking or not flourishing, we will always want something different. And that is actually a godly thing. When something's twisted and broken, or not fully what it's meant to be, our heart should long for something different and more, because God actually made us to long for that. The Greek word for content which is the, the one, the word that Apostle Paul used in his famous Philippians 4 passage. Anybody that, anybody that come to mind? I have, you know, like I've learned to be content. Like I've learned whatever situation to be content. We'll get to that in a second. The word he uses in that particular passage means this. Being self-sufficient. Having sufficiency within. Possessing all that you need for life in that moment of life. That's a lot different than happy. Being content means that you are one who fills within you the sufficiency to handle everything that's happening in the moment around you. To handle life as it is and it has been given. Contentment is self-sufficiency. It isn't don't throw a fit. Don't want something different. Contentment is, I have the ability to stuff down broccoli and cheese and not die. Right? Like, like that's what, like what I merely mean. Like, what I'm saying as a parent is I don't want to hear you grumble. Right? That I, don't want you, I don't want to hear that you want pizza. These are, these are silly examples, right? But, like, but being content, truly, if my children were content, they would know that I can, I can digest this and will be okay. I can handle this and be all right. The tenth word prohibits neither desire nor things, but rather a yearning for someone else's life. Again, remember, what are we not to covet? What are we not to desire? Something that's not ours. And so the tenth word directs us not to not want or not work for what we want, but rather to discover the sufficiency of life, of my life. Not someone else's life, but my life and God's life. That's what Paul actually says in Philippians chapter 4. Here's what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, self-sufficient. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Plenty is something that needs to be faced just as much as hunger. I have learned the secret of facing whatever desires and emotions and feelings and passions come up and with plenty or with hunger, in abundance or in need. And here's everybody's favorite verse. I can do all things through Him who strengthens who empowers me, who lives within me. Where does this self-sufficiency come from? Where does the sufficient within come from? Christ in Him. Right? 
to be able to, to believe and live off that he actually has everything he needs to not be overcome by the circumstances and situations. To be able to not be overwhelmed by his desires and his covetousness and his passions. To not be overwhelmed by his, his, own, his own brokenness. There's a sufficiency. That's what contentment means. A sufficiency of life in God's life. I can do all things through my life in Jesus' life. Jesus' life lived in my life. Not, I can do all things through your life, or their life, or her life, or his life, but my life, wherever I'm taken in life, even if I don't want to or intend to go there. Whether I have more than I need or little of it, whether I am hungry or more fully more, more fully satisfied. The secret to facing the desires for and in life. The secret to facing the desires for and in life that are good. And not being consumed by them or consuming others in pursuit of them. That is not allowing them to do violence in or through us. It's to let Jesus' contentment, His self-sufficiency, be mine. The only way to live a life whole and holy full and forever, happy and complete, is to live your life through all its ups and downs, highs and lows, difficulties and pleasures, through God for you, God with you, and God in you. Not somebody else's life. You won't find joy or wholeness in going after somebody else's life. What you'll find is quarrels with wars within and quarrels abounding around. If you want peace, you want wholeness, you live your life. And your life in God's life. God for you, God with you, God in you. And well, I might all say yes and amen. Remember our Father's revelation to the Son of Man, that our love for what is advocated will not lead to action unless our hearts delight in Him. Unless the life we already have in Him becomes the thing that we are actually satisfied in as we let our hearts settle in His presence by being still before the Lord and waiting patiently upon Him. So that's what we'll do for the last few minutes. Is one final time, we'll just be quiet and still. There's a couple of reflections on the screen. Uh, my apologies for how crammed in everything is. But essentially, take a few moments to ask the Spirit to examine our hearts around your daily actions and attitudes, asking this simple question. In what ways are you trying to live another's life? In what ways are you trying to live another's life? To go after it, to get another's life. And then at some point, let the Spirit lead you to pray. Psalm 37 is your prayer. Even if, even if it's just at the front end of belief. Right? So let me pray for us. Now let us be still and settle our hearts. Father, I don't know about everybody else, but like at least for me in this, this, this summer, I've just been incredibly humbled and amazed at how when you created us and are recreating us, Father, Lord, you're really making us competent for so many things. And as one who feels incompetent quite often, and, and Father the Lord knows um, <laughs> um, all the ways in which 
which is lacking. Um, I thank you for the grace that comes from the fact that we can be content because of your life in us. So I pray for my friends for these few moments. I pray believing, Lord, that they, like me, long for um, to be ones who live and are driven, Lord, by desire for what is good and true and, and beautiful, that get to see all the things, all the potentials of things in life that you've created. Um, your kingdom come and your will done as you teach us to pray. Um, but who, like me, maybe, uh, Father, struggle with covetousness. Struggle with wanting to live a life that's not ours. So I pray, Father, in these next few moments, that your Spirit would show us, Father, Lord, not just what we are longing for and living for, but, Lord, truly all that we have already been given in Jesus. So it's in His name I pray. Amen.